0: back gals ghouls and baddest bays of the world i'm your co-host cass clark and i'm joined as always with my lovely podcast co-host ryan bradley hello and uh, this month we have a special guest rj hi before we dive in would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about your love of horror anything that you're working on right now that you're excited about before we dive into creature features
1: Oh, sure. I'm always excited about all things horror. And so I'm a lifelong fan uh, on the reading and viewing side, as well as on the writing side. My first collection has just come out, Hell Hath No Sorrow Like a Woman Haunted. Yes. Uh,
2: Very good. I finished it last night. (laughs) Oh, excellent. Excellent.
1: Thank you. I'm so, so excited that you read it. Right now I'm working on kind of promoting that. (laughs) I always have different things kind of in uh, flux that I'm working on. So um, I'm actually presenting at a couple of conferences here coming up in um, October and November. And so right now I'm really focused on kind of getting those presentations wrapped up so that they they actually kind of make sense. Well,
0: sounds amazing. Where are the conferences being held at? Um, The first one is an online
1: conference uh, commemorating the 30th anniversary of the Candyman
0: Oh. oh,
2: that's awesome. Yeah,
1: So it's an online conference and I'm just beyond hyped about it. I mean, not just because of the venue, but because of the subject matter. I mean, like, I yeah. love Candyman. And then the other one is at the, um, and I'm going to get this wrong, so I should probably just call it MAPACA. It's like the Mid-Atlantic Popular Culture Association's Uh, conference. Um, And so it's also virtual. Uh, Again, this has opened up so many opportunities um, to, to kind of be able to attend cons that I wouldn't necessarily be able to travel for.
0: Oh great! Well, definitely keep us in the loop so we can share that because I want to watch it and participate virtually. <laughs> oh,
1: sure, thank you. Yes, it's going to be so much fun. I mean, I, I always look at the presentations and I go, "Okay, I just have to do my little part, and then I can turn students right <laughs> and and take notes on all the other exciting presentations." So that's always cool. Ah,
0: oh, fabulous.
2: Out of curiosity. Because I've seen a play has spun around in front of the mirror five times and said Candyman. And she wrote that oh, essay wow. about that. RJ, have you ever done the five spins and said Candyman or oh, Bloody no. Mary or anything?
1: No. Oh, nope. <laughs> 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 yeah, I don't. I don't play those kind of games. There are way too many things that we do not understand, and mm-hmm. and I figured that I'll just keep that door shut.
2: Where is he? Dead. He was killed by something. Killed by something, Uncle. They want something. CREATURE FEATURES the name comes from the tv shows from the 60s to the 80s broadcast locally showing films featuring monsters really horror films in general um, and that name has kind of served the inspiration for the podcast For our purposes, we're talking about creature features as defined by Michelle Egan from Wicked Horror. And as she writes, uh, non-human, non-mechanical beings that are strictly terrestrial in origin, but not animals run amok, um, which we covered in our animal attacks episode. And they also can't already fit into an existing categories or create their own. Um, For example, Night of the Living Dead would have been a creature feature if it hadn't had this new distinct type of zombie introduced, hadn't inspired so many other films and kind of created its own subgenre. We're also saving kaiju stuff for a future episode. And so I had to look up the definition of kaiju, which I had not really known before. Like I knew big monster, right? According to the UltraFan Wiki, a typical kaiju is usually at least 20 meters slash 65 feet tall, which is the largest a creature following real world physics can get. While their size is limited only by your choice, a kaiju is from 40 to 80 meters tall or 131 to 260 feet tall, um, so as I was just going through the movies for creature features, which we'll get into in a minute, I paraphrased it to a kaiju is a monster that can eat a human being in one bite. It's so, like the creature from Host, which we we'll are talking about later, can fit a child in its mouth, but it's got to chew. It's got to do all of that. So it's a little too small. Mm. Um, so the origin of creature features, the origin of creatures is very similar to the origin of animal attacks. For a really long time, and we're still in that really long time, there's a ton of shit that people didn't know about and would catch glimpses of, and they'd need to make up a story to to explain, like, what was this thing I saw? Um, Most likely it was animals, but they start giving the animals personalities and names, and that's how we got to creatures. As early as the Epic of Gilgamesh, which you may have been forced to read in high school like me, (laughs) maybe even liked it like me, (laughs) where he fights a series of monsters and spirits, some of which would fall into the creature definition that's around 2100 BC. It was back then creatures were obstacles to be overcome and monsters to slay. Not, they were scary, but the point of like the Minotaur story is that Theseus is going to kill the Minotaur. We don't get killing machine going through scantily clad teens, which is the creature features we're more talking about now. Creatures aren't a huge part of literature going forward for a long time. Instead, we've got a lot of ghosts, vampires, ghouls, and gothic stuff. And to be fair, a lot of those things might have been original and new as gothic writers wrote about them, even though they feel old hat to us now. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I see creatures really exploding in literature starting in the weird fiction boom from like 1880 to 1940, where a lot of pulp magazines were taking chances on new writers. So we'd have stories like Algernon Blackwood's The Willows, about plants from a different dimension invading ours. So T. Kingfisher kind of rewrote the willows into the hollow places, which is a very cool book. And then we start getting into movies around that same time. There aren't a ton in early film, I think in large part because the technology to create convincing non-human creatures wasn't there yet. The earliest one I could find, I am not a silent film era expert, so there's definitely some stuff I could be missing in that time. But the sea bat from 1930 was supposed to be a Lon Chaney senior vehicle, but he took ill... So Boris Karloff took over due to Chinese cancer. And then King Kong 1932 wasn't really a a creature feature, Um, definitely a kaiju, but it featured some of the very first stop motion creatures, especially as they moved through the lost world. Those were created by Will O'Brien, who would go on to inspire and then train Ray Harryhausen on the side of Mighty Joe Young. And his work is an absolute pleasure and his stop motion really inspired a lot of this Creature Feature. Then we get to 1940 with The Devil Bat, PRC's debut. They were a huge company in the forties and fifties doing kind of exploitation movies, often with Bela Lugosi who was in The Devil Bat as a, a mad scientist. In 1954 and really from then on, Creature Features explode in large part due to anxiety about what nuclear bombs and the atom bomb are going to do, as well as other Cold War paranoias. So Them from 1954 is a classic featuring giant killer ants. Then we get to our first movie, which we'll swing back around to after the history, Creature from the Black Lagoon, 1954. Two sequels, Revenge of the Creature in 1955, The Creature Walks Among Us in 1956. Black Scorpion came about in 1957. It's about a giant scorpion. Deadly Mantis, same thing, 1957, Giant Praying Mantis. Attack of the Crab Monsters, 1958, a lot of Roger Corman. Earth versus the Spider, a giant spider attacks a small town, but like a car-sized spider, not a kaiju-sized spider. Attack of the Giant Leeches from 1959, which is on Amazon, and someone was telling me ArmadilloCon is terrible, but sounds like a lot of fun. Giant Gila Monster from 1959. The Tingler from 1959, which is a classic. William Castle and Vincent Price collaborated. Because William Castle is just all this crazy marketing stuff. He had shockers underneath people's chairs placed randomly throughout theaters. So if you were seeing the movie, you might get shocked when you saw the monster on screen, which I think is the coolest. I wish I'd still do stuff like that for movies. Degaro from 1964, which was uh, another movie by Godzilla, Helmer, Ishiro Honda. And then we're skipping to the 70s. we got the giant spider invasion from 1975. 1979, prophecy about a mutant bear on the loose. 1982, one of my favorite movies of all time, Cue the Winged Serpent, instead of like a creature fight in the climax, there's a negotiation about whether a small-time criminal (laughs) will reveal the location of the monster to the New York City police, and he's trying to get them to give him a full million dollars before he'll tell them (laughs) where the monster is. It just kills me. I love that movie. Um, 1982 also had The Slayer, an indie horror from J.S. Cardone, a real gnarly-looking monster. 1984, probably one of the most famous creature features. Joe Dante's Gremlins. And then 1986, we have Rawhead Rex, the first of Clive Barker's creature features. He with the short story that inspired it. And Pumpkinhead in 1988, surprisingly tender take on the creature feature by special effects legend Stan Winston. 1989, we had Leviathan, a giant underwater mutant mayhem directed by George P. Cosmatos, father of Panos Cosmatos, who directed Mandy and Beyond the Black Rainbow. 1990, we had Graveyard Shift, a Stephen King adaptation with a gigantic bat. Gremlins 2, the new batch, came out in the same year in 1990. 1990 is a huge year for creature features. It's the bonkers follow up to the 84 classic and the inspiration for probably my favorite Key and Peel skit. Nightbreed 1990, Clive Barker directed this one um, and wrote it. Tons of creatures um, cast one of their favorite movies. And then 1990, we also had Tremors, which inspired six sequels, a series, and a second series that didn't get past the pilot phase. Those are also great fun. Jurassic Park came in 1993. We're counting these as creatures because they're not actually looking like dinosaurs at all, based on what we know in dinosaurs now. Five sequels, and they say the next one's going to be the last one. I would be shocked if they don't just keep pumping out a Jurassic Park movie every two years, for the next 50 years.
0: I really hope not. <laughs> I don't. But any. a guy- <laughs>
2: Every time they come out, they make a billion dollars. They're going to keep making them. I don't think they're good. I think only one Jurassic Park movie is good, unfortunately. <laughs> but they're just going to keep making them. It's a, it's bank. Relic came out in 1997. And the, there's a lizard monster on loose in the museum. I haven't seen this one, but it looks incredible just from the screenshots. Aberration came out in 1997, directed by Tim Boxwell. Mimic came out in 1997. Um, and there's another person directed it that we're going to see a lot of. It's early Guillermo del Toro. And I think he's been on the record saying he did not like this movie at all.
0: Yeah, Um, I forget exactly what happened, but there was a lot of studio involvement. I think it had to do with like how far he could take it into horror and it it lands in kind of a middling sci-fi lane, which he's not very happy about.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think just like for the money, if you have Guillermo del Toro, like probably the best creature designer going right now. You should let him do whatever he wants with the creatures.
0: Yeah, yeah but this is still early on before he got like notoriety. So it's just like really funny where it's like, well, <laughs> if he was given the freedom, maybe he would have been more famous sooner.
2: <laughs> yeah. From there, we go to Eight-Legged Freaks in 2002, which is a Ellery Elkayem horror comedy. And then we get a lot more del So we get Hellboy in 2004, lots of awesome creatures, including one inspired by the creature from the Black Lagoon. 2006, we get Pan's Labyrinth, which is Guillermo del Toro was a popular director basically at that point. And I think this is where he wins the Oscar and really flips over into doing Oscar nominated films after this. Um, I think this is where he really gets his notoriety as like a, an artsy director on top of being like an incredible genre director. And then Host came out in 2006. It's our second breakout film. So we'll talk about that a bunch more later. In 2008, we got Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. So much Guillermo del Toro stuff in here and so many amazing monsters and just Mm -hmm. very cool designs.
0: That one's always like underrated and people aren't a huge fan of it. And it always surprised me because I feel like that has some of his like most impressive puppetry. Like there's that one market scene where it's like he didn't need to have it in the film. He really didn't. But you just see like Hellboy walking through this like labyrinth like market of monsters and every creature is distinct and different and like practically designed for the most part with some visual effect touches and just like how did we forget that
2: yeah i do think like del toro if he has a weakness is that it's he'll lean too much into the creatures to the detriment of the plot Uh. and the themes of what he's doing but it's so much fun to look at the creatures it's hard to be angry about it you know Mm, Yeah. Uh, So after that we got Cloverfield, which you could argue there's parts of it that are a kaiju movie for sure, but I just think it's a very important movie and movie history. Matt Reeves directed uh, as a series started with two sequels found footage film 2008 we got Midnight Meat Train directed by Raihei Kinamara directing Bradley Cooper through a Clive Barker story adaptations. That's a ridiculous amount of talent. Rubber 2010 features a tire that comes to life and kills people with psychic powers. Bad Milo in 2013 featured a stomach tumor that comes to life and goes on a killing spree. The Baba Duke in 2014 was Jennifer Kent's debut. And you could argue it one of two ways that either it shaped the horror film genre going forward or was just like the signal that this change was happening. But either way, after 2014, Monsters Metaphor, as Lucas Magnum puts it, is like the type of horror film we're getting a ton of now, which I love. Zombie Beaver's 2014, very different kind of horror movie, mutated zombie beaver attacking people parody. It follows came out in two thousand and fifteen, directed by David Robert Mitchell. Same part of the the, the Baba Duke boom. Krampus came out in two thousand and fifteen. Michael dowherty's Is it his follow up to the one you like cast?
0: Oh, Trick or Treat. It's. I mean, I guess you could say it's like a spiritual follow up in the sense that yeah. like it's just about a different holiday. But from what I can tell, sadly, they're not connected like in a mythic way. But who knows? He always says it. Well, in the past, he used to say that he wanted to do like a trilogy, like one would be about Halloween, which is trick or treat. And one would be about Christmas. And I don't think he ever really settled on what the third would be, but I would love to see that because that'd be really cool if you could find a way to tie them all in together. And then it's just like, like the monsters of the holidays. I think that'd be amazing, but I don't know if any of that's true right now.
2: (laughs) What do you think the third one would be?
0: I think the Easter bunny could be cool, but I also would love to see like maybe not all technically Catholic religions. Yeah. Cause even Halloween comes from like, it's, it's Turkey. It comes from pagan roots, but also like from like an Irish culture that was mostly dominated by Roman Catholics. And that was like the best they could keep alive of their tradition was now a now commercial holiday called Halloween. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know. What do you two think? If you had to pick one holiday for uh, Michael Doherty to tackle next, what would it be?
1: No, I would love to see something uh, around, okay, I mean, as it stands, the 4th of July, right? (laughs) (gasps) You know, about freedom, what that really means. And I just like to see stuff blow up, right? So I mean, lots and lots of, uh, you know, firework stuff and, you know, pyrotechnics, all that good stuff.
0: (laughs) That'd be amazing.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, that would be wonderful.
0: Yeah. Could there be a monster made of fireworks? Like... (laughs)
2: Oh, okay. I was imagining when you said that like a zombie Uncle Sam.
0: <laughs> yeah, even, yes.
1: <laughs> all of that, all of that. I dig all of that.
0: <laughs> man. Okay, now I'm excited about that. <laughs> all
2: right, I'm trying to think of the worst holiday, and I think it has to be Valentine's Day because so I think Cupid <laughs> oh, as a murderer, I, I don't know. That would be cool.
0: <laughs> I, I would watch it. Would it be like, would the Cupid be like a man baby or like, I guess in all <laughs> senses of the word? <laughs>
2: I don't know if you want to make like a kaiju of cupid or you want to have like a, a size of cupid that you'd see like in, in medieval paintings but either way I, I i'm down to see cupid murder people because i think it would fit in like the michael Dougherty tradition of like the the gingerbread men coming to life to murder oh
1: yeah um, yes yes that would be really cool <laughs> all
0: right we got a pitch we gotta pick
2: Pitch
0: to (laughs) Michael. Yes, yes. All right. All right, let's go. (laughs) Next
2: in our history, we have The Shape of Water from 2017. One of my favorite movies, Guillermo del Toro's Oscar winner for Best Picture and the creature fucks in that movie. Um, Literally, not in the the new slang sense of the word being cool. Uh, 2017, we have The Ritual, which is the first entry into the Adam Neville cinematic universe, which I think Bob Pastorella pointed out on the, the Ah, Real Monsters panel, RJ were on, and I were on at a ghoulish book fest. Okay, okay. 2020, Love and Monsters came out. I haven't seen that one. Um, 2021, No One Gets Out Alive, the second entry in the Adam Neville cinematic universe. With creature features, I'm sure I'm missing a ton. Am I missing any of y'all's favorites?
1: Yeah, no, I don't know. Because I, I kind of waffle with adding <laughs> malignant to such a list. It's so I'm not so sure. I, I think I'm still going to straddle the fence with that one. I mean, because technically, yeah. the it's really like uh, the monster was the main character but at the same time it was a whole different personality so I think and actually seeing your list I think we would have to kind of put it here though uh because if we have the stomach tumor come to life then yeah we we have the brain tumor you know non-excised you know that came to life too so I guess we would have to put it here
2: yeah yeah absolutely yeah
0: Yeah, I think it would fit for sure
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it was a lot of fun I really loved that one (laughs) Yeah. I think the the jailhouse scene was just phenomenal.
0: It
1: was bonkers, man. I mean, like <laughs>
0: even, every time I rewatch it, I'm always going, "Man, yeah." And I love too that like that whole segment is an actual contortionist fighting and like sort of fight dancing at the same time backwards while not being able <laughs> yeah. to physically see. And I'm just like what
1: (laughs) backwards it's the backwards that gets me every time it's like
0: Okay, so let's dive into 1954's Creature from the Black Lagoon. So directed by Jack Arnold, Creature from the Black Lagoon tells a tale about a group of scientists who want to study a mythic prehistoric creature that we now lovingly call Gill. <laughs> However, uh, one of the scientists, Kay Lawrence, played by Julie Adams, is captured because she catches the eye of the lonely and mythic and very sad creature. And then the hunt begins to capture Gil and study him and hopefully save Kay all at the same time. The first thing I just want to bring up with this film is so, so many hands went into the screenplay. Not really fair to say one person wrote it, but one of the funniest beats that I got about the screenplay was from Mallory O'Mara's The Lady from the Black Lagoon novel, which is fantastic. It's kind of a memoir and also at the same time an exploration of uh, Millicent Patrick, who is the designer of the creature. And one of the beats that she tells in this like overarching story about the movie is William Allen really wanted this film to be like King Kong meets Beauty and the Beast love story. But the studio pushed back against it because they wanted it to be more like King Kong, like more like Big Beast takes women than necessarily be like, any kind of this mushy exploration of like how it feels to feel like an outsider and wanting to be understood and and all the like more romantic angles that Alan wanted in the script um so a lot of other writers had their hands in that script to make it more of the version that we see today which I think is really funny because this is the same film that would inspire Del Toro to make The Shape of Water which is basically King Kong (laughs) meets (laughs) Beauty and the Beast and he's just like like when he saw it as a little kid, he was just like, oh, I just wanted Gil to fall in love with like Kay and I wanted it all be okay. And so he's like, I just couldn't get that that ending. So I made my own film that had that ending instead. <laughs> One thing I do like to mention, uh, also credit to Mallory Romero for this little beat about that is, although Del Toro is like, behind a lot of his work what's really as far as creature work a lot of the people involved in the process don't necessarily get the recognition they deserve like First shape of water although it it won a bunch of oscars like it stole the show during the year that came out the hair and makeup teams weren't at all receiving any recognition for their work on the man in the film and I just thought that was a shame so like to mention that
2: yeah.
0: next up <laughs> Millicent Patrick so Millicent Patrick is the designer of the creature Gill and what's really interesting is she was also one of Disney's first animators so do you remember have either of you seen Fantasia yes remember at the ending where there's like dark mythic like winged bat like creature yeah yeah she was one of the ones that designed that look and did like the sequence animation for that to make it move in a way that felt eerie and gothic and cool so I love bringing that up because you can definitely see how her work developed from there Uh, she eventually caught the eye of Bud Westmore who is a horrible man allegedly (laughs) basically Bud Westmore is a part of the Westmore family and during like honestly from as early as like the late 30s up until like about the early 60s like in that murky quote-unquote golden age of Hollywood time period. The Westmores were a family of makeup designers. They had like 19 children and six of them, around six or so, were men. And each of the sons worked at a different makeup studio for like big movie production house. And one of them, Bud, worked at Universal. And he was really known for being very backstabby. And he was obsessed with getting like the sole credit for creating Gil. The studio loved Millicent because she had all this background animation. She also was a background actor in a lot of films. She was very charismatic. She was beautiful. So like she was the best like person to be going on this tour to, to promote this movie. That's also about a beautiful woman getting like captured by a monster. And he's like, oh, this is amazing for us. This works great. Bud got so jealous that like he hired people to basically follow her on tour and document everything she said and made sure that she never claimed credit for designing this monster. Yeah, it's bad. It is so bad. It is so bad. And that's why to this day, and up until Mally Romero's book came out, people didn't believe that Millicent Patrick actually designed the monster because on tour, she couldn't say it. Just like despite the fact that there's plenty of archival footage of her with different designs and molds of the mask, and looking at that compared to her sketches and tactile evidence that she did create this because she couldn't say it. A lot of people didn't believe she did, and so it's really, especially with this kind of film, it's. I think it's really important to mention that she did a lot of other great work for Universal Pictures, including doing the the mass for Alba and Cassell meet after and Mr. Hyde. But after Melson getting so much acclaim and attention for the press tour she did for this film, Bud ousted her from Universal Pictures makeup department. Yeah. So I feel like shots fired at it appropriately. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing work. It's, it's great. She does a ton of research. Uh, she went into the, I'm hoping I'm saying this right, the Devonian period, aka the age of fishes, to, mm-hmm. to like get the prehistoric animal feel for Gil. Before we go a little bit further, how did you feel about looking at the design and the effects of the monster now? Do you think it
1: holds up? Well, the one thing that struck me in the rewatch was how it's rated G. <laughs> and and I'm like, but... You know, I get why it's rated G, but it's still, I'm kind of going, but there's still like murder and mayhem or attempted murder and mayhem. So (laughs) that was kind of freaking me out. But the, the creature design, I think holds up well, especially since this is supposed to be a creature that is supposed to be that bridging that gap between humans as we are now and then as we evolve. So I thought, what could that creature have looked like? I think that's possible.
2: So I noticed the uh, it was rated G as well. And I started wondering like was there no PG rating at this time? Because it seems like at least PG because yeah. like you said like the murder and the mayhem. Yes. But I did like the creature design. When you started your sentence cast and you were saying there's a lot of hands, I thought it was going to end within the film because there's so many times we see the the creature's <laughs> hand come out and we hear the. Duh, duh, duh really played a lot of times through all three movies, that that little musical theme for his hand. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the design in the first two movies a lot. The third movie, I don't know if y'all have seen it, he gets burnt and they say he lost his scales and they put him in like a gigantic suit and he's like kind of melted looking and weird. That design is not good. The first two films where they keep the original design, mm-hmm. he looks
0: great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and speaking of Gil, he was played by two actors Ben Chapman for the on-land shots. And then Riku Browning for all the underwater shots. If you look really closely, you can tell that there's a drastic difference in height. Ben is almost over half a foot taller than Browning. So when you look at the underwater shots and just like look at like the torso length, when you see Gil actually on land, the torso's an extra plate bigger. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Because I wanted him on land to be towering and big because the actor is, I think something close to like 6'6". And Browning Uh. is like under five feet. (laughs) Really not under five feet that's exaggeration he's like under he's definitely under six feet for a lot of the close-up shots they wanted to keep it looking realistic and they couldn't find a way to like cut out holes in the mask without it looking like cheap so for all the shots where you see like gill's face up close Chapman is wearing that with no ability to see because there's no eye holes in that sucker. (laughs) And also uh, since this was back in the day when there was no OSHA regulations, which I'm so happy we have now. So we don't have to think about things like how Browning didn't have any water tube or any sort of like hose to help him breathe, which I know I saw Ryan, you had a question in the notes. I was like, I'm definitely this one. Yeah. So he basically, every time he was underwater, The amount of like swimming expertise and acting expertise this dude has cannot be overstated because not only does he have no oxygen tank, no hose, but the suit itself uh, was initially made out of all like foam latex. And the big issue with that for underwater scenes is it can get soggy and also like it floats, And so they had to really figure out like, how the heck are we gonna get this? So like he can move and not just be like, you can't see this listeners, but I'm like pretending to be buoyed up awkwardly. And so they're like, okay, we'll add in some metal sheets to the suit. So this dude is wearing a mask that has very like, very hard to breathe in, doesn't have like a mouth opening, made out of all foam latex and has metal sheets like layered in to make him sink so he can swim Uh, and had to hold his breath for like up to four minutes at a time in the film. Right. And the only way that they could tell he needed a breathing break was his his cue to the production team people were just like going limp with his body, which is terrifying because you're like, what, what if he was actually drowning? <laughs> like, oh my gosh, yes. you would be able to tell. You'd be like, um, I think that I think Browning's giving us a clue, or maybe he needs CPR. Someone should check him.
2: So, did you come across in your research because if they put metal plates in a soggy swimming suit with mm-hmm. no air, was that like 200 pounds? Like, do you know how much it weighs?
0: Yeah. I mean, I would love to know. I didn't find those details. I just found like what was a part of the suit to make it work. Cause also like it came up more in the, like, how are they going to get two vastly different height actors in the same suit? And so they had to make some alterations, like some masks would be not going water. Some would. So they had different masks, but I don't know, but I would love to know. Cause I feel like that makes it even more impressive to be like, were you, what were you like wearing like a hundred pounds of metal or <laughs> sure,
1: underwater and water yeah. makes everything heavier like it's harder all the way around
0: yeah it's it's it is insane thank you osha for existing <laughs>
2: like,
0: yeah it makes me so nervous <laughs> oh i'd be remiss if i didn't also mention chris Mueller was a monster sculptor and also despite some film historians being like i don't think millicent designed designed this piece chris the actual sculptor was like no i i used Millicent's designs, like that's how we got here. So that's another like verifiable account for all those people being like, hmm, I don't know. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Some fun names that got passed over for the making of this film where they're like, what should we call this? The earlier titles were kind of going back to the like Frankenstein or like Dracula or like that one word, like easy hook. Uh, So some earlier titles were Black Lagoon, The Fishman, (laughs) Horror Lagoon. (laughs) (laughs) Not great, uh, but I would love to hear your thoughts on, if any of those titles actually kind of work, how you feel about the title they ultimately landed on.
1: Okay, so (laughs) I don't really like those. Um, The ones that were passed on, I think that was best. I don't know that the creature from Black Lagoon. The one thing is we, we think about the words mean stuff, right? Um, and and so I know that once I start thinking about the title, having the lagoon be called Black Lagoon, always the word black, you add it, that means darkness, that means heaviness, that means evil. And then to just call him the creature, though, I thought that was like kind of rude. <laughs> I think it's really like this was his home. So like it's really the creature here, like invading this life form space. But I think as far as anything else, it could have been way worse because it could have been one of those. So I mean, I think it's fine. I don't know what I would have called it otherwise, but I think what it is is fine.
2: Yeah. I hear your point about the the creature being, I mean, it's not human, but I think dehumanizing is like probably a good word to sum up. what what you're saying. I think the rhythm of the creature from the Black Lagoon works really well and it's very catchy. But I agree with you that the creature is probably not the best thing. I do like the creature better than I like Gilman. Uh Uh-huh. I think Gilman sounds like, it seems like a very 1950s race. I know this movie came out in the 1950s, but it's like, we didn't put any effort into this. He has gills. He's gill man now.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> they didn't
2: come with a Latin name. They didn't come with anything you'd come up with when naming a real creature you discovered.
0: One funny aside, now that I'm thinking about like the, the Black Lagoon portion of the title, well, Universal is brainstorming how to market this film. This is still like, as I was talking about earlier, like in the age of gimmicks, where like gimmicks were still relied on for like movie premieres and leading up to it. Uh, Cause also like, the pre-internet age so you need something splashy to get people's attention mm-hmm. uh, and one of the things they were thinking about they're like okay we're gonna hire a bunch of people and we're gonna go around the country find like bodies of water and call them black lagoons and just like have that printed in papers it's like I have no idea how that was gonna happen who was gonna give them the rights to just like change like landmarks but this is just just shows you I think some deeper levels of universal pictures just being like here's some land that we're now taking for our film thank you <laughs> <laughs> Okay, nerdy question. So originally, they were debating on whether or not to make this film in technicolor, 3D or black and white, and they ultimately landed on 3D black and white, which I, I feel bad that I can't see it in 3D black and white in my living room. And I'm really curious for what that looks like. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'd like to know what y'all think. Did you ever wish to see like a colorized version of Gill, Or do you like that it's black and white? Have either of you seen the 3D version? Because I would love to know what that's like, too.
1: I haven't. I have not. I'm, I'm also curious. Like, I didn't realize it was a 3D movie. That kind of went right over my head. I would not want to see it in color, though. I feel like one of the things that makes it work, especially as sort of this gothic romance type thing uh and lends itself more to that atmosphere is the fact that it's in black and white like it's a little bit easier to kind of to get that to for it to set that tone you know of the romantic or the longing like there's just something about bright colors that just kind of don't scream love like even if we look at the shape of water like even though it was in full color the colors were muted you know they were soft it kind of lent itself better to that whole mood. With a movie like like The Creature from Black Lagoon, it, and when you colorize it, you kind of take the risk of it coming off as sort of a, a Wizard of Oz sort of a thing, or sort of a cartoonish sort of a thing. And I think that the black and white sort of hid some of those flaws and kind of kept it a little creepier.
2: Absolutely. I agree with all of that. I would have loved to see like a '60s or '70s Technicolor acid trip creature from the Black Lagoon film. Oh, because um, I mean, the Amazon forest is so colorful, and the creature could be part of that. And we could just get like a real, like Andy Warhol film style acid trip version of this. Oh. I would love to see that adaptation. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't exist. Right, I think this one is the right the right thing to do. The black and white.
1: Yes. 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 But that would be really great to see. Now that you've said it, I'm like, oh my gosh. Like kind of that whole treatment of um all oh, the Nicolas Cage movie, right? The 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 real tri- I can't think of the name of it. Men? Out of color, maybe. Oh, the color out of space. Color out of space. Yeah. yeah. Still trippy. And I'm thinking, oh, this would have been brilliant. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yes. So this film uses an idea that's not new to old or new horror about using women as bait for its premise. Like. Despite the fact that the film lightly peppers in some scientific reasoning for wanting to capture Gil, it's really about saving Kay and and using that as a, like, this is how we can prove that this, like, creature is evil because it took Kay. So how do we feel about that? Is there anything that shows up in this film that you're like, oh, actually, I think they handled it better than others or some things that popped up where you're like, oh, and here's where it started and I'm still cringing.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, <laughs> well, one thing
1: that I did appreciate about that whole um, premise was that uh, Kate is presented as a scientist herself. It did sort of make this a little more logical in that, okay, if you're a part of the scientific team that is actually breaching this, you know, this um, animal's layer. It kind of makes sense that it might want to capture you. It was still very cringe because you just kind of go, man, like, do we have to see this over and over and over and over again? Why? Because she actually seemed kind of tough. Like she wasn't the one that was the weakest link there. She shouldn't have been the one that was that they were trying, trying to kidnap, Right. So, I mean, for me, it probably would have gone over better if it had been the really whiny guy. You know, go capture him because he's like, you know, the soft one, take (laughs) him. But with that romantic subplot, and at that time, uh, what they would have depicted, it would have had to have been Kate because they they would never have entertained the possibility that the creature was romantically attracted to one of the guys. It just just wouldn't have gone down like that. Although it would have been really cool. It just wouldn't
2: have. Yeah, I think one thing I would point out is the creature's gender is never specified. I mean, the movie, they refer to it as he, so we're referring to it as he, and it keeps going through I don't think we ever see any signs that creature has genitalia. Um, I know in Shape of the Water, she does that hysterical hand motion to describe how the genitalia comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like a great moment in that film. But in this film, there, there's nothing about that. And I do think that's like very much a thing in Creature Features, that the creature takes a conventionally attractive blonde woman back to its lair. And the theme of a lot of these creature features because of that is like, we cannot let the other take our women, um, which is bad, straight bad. That's where I see this kind of coming is that Gil, one, is not gendered. And two, this is a bad trope that that keeps happening. And I would like it to stop happening.
1: (laughs) Yes. Oh, that's excellent. That is an excellent point, Ryan, because that's exactly what it is. It's like we gotta, we gotta keep the women folks safe.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it's um, although it didn't make its way into the film, they f- I do know that Universal fully intended Gil to be like an other male to the extent that they were like brainstorming how to show like his penis or what they could get away with showing. And they were at the same time also like passing around like memos amongst the studio being like, So how much of Ju- like Julie Adams skin can we show and get away with it while still like being under like the haze Code and that kind of stuff. And it's just like, okay. So you know what they intended. And it's, I do like that thought, Ryan, that you brought up. There's like a freedom with like genderless monsters. And that like, it says a lot about the gender we apply to a monster acting a certain way. And what we feel about that gender, which is, I think, important to like tease out.
2: I would love so much to be at the meeting with a bunch of uptight 1950s executives talking about how much dick can we show? (laughs)
1: Yes. Oh my gosh. Can you
2: imagine? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it
1: was <time. laughs> Yeah, like, well, you can show the curve. Like, there's this, um, in Notting Hill, Julia Roberts kind of describes their, the actor's contracts. And she's like, well, you can show the curve of the buttock, but you cannot, right? And so, I mean, I imagine that they were very detailed in that way. Well, you can show the shadow of the left angle, but you cannot show full (laughs) on. (laughs) I mean, I can only imagine how bonkers it was.
0: Oh my God. (laughs) One of the most iconic scenes in this film uh, is one one that's now often compared to Jaws which always makes me laugh so I'm just like but this movie came first so why are we like oh the Jaws like scene it's like well you mean the creature from the Black Lagoon scene that Jaws then used <laughs> so it's the scene where like Gil is stalking Kay underwater and it's I I think the thing that sticks out to me the most about that is I really love like the parallelism of it like that they're like he's literally like swimming floating upwards and watching her and it's like clawing to get near her but mm-hmm. it's he? Generally seems like terrified of touching. Like he gets so close, and it's like that longing, longing that RJ was mentioning. Like you can feel him really wanting to connect, but he just can't. And she's oblivious to the whole thing, and it it just I think it it hits it hints at something deeper going on with Gil. So I love to hear what you think about that scene.
1: Yeah, it was. It's just like we we're talking about. It's that longing. It's also. I really thought what was striking about that, besides it being so poignant, was that it showed that not only was he foreign for them, but they were actually foreign for him. Uh, And so it kind of shows that whole, yeah, you know, we're imbuing all this, this bad intent on him, but the fact of the matter is he's probably afraid of them too. And and so he, I, I think that, I, li- I really like the way that that scene showcased that. Was that, yeah, I know, they're not the only ones that have these feelings. Gil has feelings too. And one of his feelings is fear. He it, he fears these humans, um, even as he wants to connect with her.
2: Absolutely. I couldn't say it better than that. I just think that scene is beautiful for all the reasons RJ said.
1: That was really well shot. It was nice.
0: <laughs> and ignoring the following sequels for now, because I ha- I haven't seen them. So do you think that Gil should have died in this film? I know that Browning uh, firmly thinks, yes, like based on how the film goes, he should die in the film because there's not really much of a future for him after he's been discovered. What do you all think?
1: No, you know, in my rewatch, I realized he just sort of drifted away he just sort of floated down. And then, of course, he goes left. And now with this background, I was thinking now, well, how do we know that Browning just didn't even break at that time? Uh, but, I mean, even if we're going to go with this, they only hinted that he may have died. But my thinking is, um, well, no, they didn't actually show his dead carcass, wash up anywhere. Uh, It's very possible that he could have healed. In the water. And so I like that the ending was ambiguous. I really liked after they tortured this poor soul forever and ever through this whole movie, that the one guy at the end was kind of like, no, that's enough. Let's like, just let him go, you know, and showed that bit of sympathy, uh, to kind of just let him go lick his wounds in peace. That scene kind of reminded me of those old western gunslinger scenes where, you know, you see the one that's, of course, we know it's going to be the fastest shot and he shoots the guy just the one time, like there's sort of an honor in killing, right? Honor in death. And so just like let him go and do, if he survives the wound, then that we still call this fair. If he doesn't, then that's still fair too, but kind of give him some dignity. Uh, So no, I don't think he should have stayed dead because we don't know what was down in that water. We don't know how healing it was for him and like I was kind of hoping he made it. Even when I was a kid, I'm like, I hope he's not dead.
2: <laughs> the other thing I'd point out is there's probably more than one Gilman in this lagoon. Yes. Well,
1: there was one and we know there were at least two.
2: Yeah. So absolutely, that's a very good point, Ryan. Very great, yes.
0: Uh, that's all the questions I have. Do either of you have any points you're dying to bring up or questions that you want to talk about about this film?
2: So this film is notorious in archeology span circles. Because of how wildly inaccurate it is. Like the people who are digging find this random arm and the guy just like yanks it out <laughs> of the rock. <laughs> it is like, are you gonna wear gloves? Are you gonna put it in a bag? Are you gonna do anything to protect it? So it's notorious. People watch it just to laugh at how bad their, their archaeology is. And I love that. I right. point out it's, it's really bad and it's a treatment of, of native characters. Specifically, oh, yes. they're allowed to die, there's no mourning. The one of the scientists gets hurt, so we start talking about this is a massive loss of knowledge for the world. Oh yes. <laughs> Not great. <laughs> and then Cass, I had one question for you as a martial artist. That's <laughs> that scene. That scene where one guy punches another guy and he goes down for the count and then stands up and punches the other guy. And he goes down for the count. That's accurate to how all fighting is, right? <laughs>
0: I've been hit hard enough in the head where I've been knocked out. And the one thing I love about movies is someone's like knocked out for like two minutes. You're like, it's like three seconds. And you're like, oh, (laughs) it's It's exactly what it feels like. It's like you took like a micro nap and then you wake up. So the one thing I do appreciate, even though it's very goofy and silly, I do appreciate that they do fall down for a second or so and then they get back up. Um, I don't think you'd get up as quickly, but I think the rate to which you like wake up from being knocked out is kind of closer to what it's like in, in reality. It goes by pretty quick. (laughs) That's it. That's all I got for that scene. (laughs) That's all that scene deserves.
2: Excellent. RJ, do you have any other thoughts or things you want to discuss?
0: I did just think of
1: another movie that, that I guess I probably should have mentioned way earlier. When we we're talking about creature features. Um, Sweetheart. I want to say it's maybe from 2019. And there is a creature that is aquatic. And one thing about that is that it does seem to hint that uh, because the creature only comes out of the water at night and under the guise of darkness, that it may have been sort of inspired by this movie. And so I guess the thing that I'm thinking is that the... The water is shown as this um, life-giving safe haven for these creatures, even though they can come on land for a certain amount of time. Uh, And so I I really like that juxtaposition between the sea as being life-giving, but then also that this creature that's capable of killing, you know, taking that life uh, is is coming out of it. So I I really kind of like that that idea
2: for these aquatic creatures. Yeah. Uh, Are we ready to move on to our second film?
0: Let's do it. Mr. Kim,
2: formaldehyde, dirty formaldehyde,
0: pour him into the sink.
2: All right, so our second breakout film, a more recent creature feature, is The Host from 2006. It opens with an American partition ordered a Korean man to dump formaldehyde down the drain, like a lot of formaldehyde. This results in something being mutated. People have said it's a fish. It looked more like a frog to me as a creature, which is hinted at before we meet our heroes, the dysfunctional Park family. Park Gang-do is working at the family snack bar when the creature comes out and kidnaps his daughter. She manages to hide in the creature's lair and call him. So the family breaks out of a quarantine to try to rescue her. It's the third feature film by the legendary Bong Joon-ho from a script by Joon-ho himself, Ha Wang Jun. And by Hyun how'd you like the movie?
1: Oh man, I actually had to rewatch it quite a few times uh, because the first time it just didn't even strike me that it was a horror movie. And, and no. I know that might sound kind of weird but it really seemed like a family drama with a lot of comedy thrown in uh, that just happened to have this monster, right? And so I was really intrigued by the relationship between these family members and then their larger community. And I thought, it's, it's something, as you know, here because I'm southern, like I'm native southern, right? And so there's always this thing where you go, Well, my family might be dysfunctional, but nobody else better not mess with us <laughs> because all that dysfunction and toxicity is going to be bundled together into this, like, really power pellet, and we're going to defeat whatever monster, whatever comes this way. So I had to actually watch it again through the lens of a horror film because the first viewing, I just totally lost that, which is kind of crazy. I mean, the monster's right there, but it just didn't seem to be the main issue, the main
0: point there. Yeah, this is one of my favorite movies. I'm a huge K-horror fan. There was always censorship in Korean film, thanks to some um, Japanese imperialists, (laughs) but it wasn't completely abolished until 2001. But I think because of that, I think there's like, within K-horror, there's such a need to tell family stories just to show like how so much of other people's and other countries restrictions of them have created rippling effects that can only be captured. It can be captured best within like a family structure because you see these different generations and how people interact differently with each other in the world and what like prejudices they hold on to, which ones they, they don't. So I love it as both like a family drama and a horror. And I think that like Junho especially loves to do this in his films where he likes to kind of explore the every, everyday horror and then like the monster of the film. Yeah, it's important, whatever, whatever it is, but like it's more about the horrifying ways that people treat each other in these tense situations and what we learn from that and what they learn about themselves. So I really love it.
2: (laughs) I originally hated it when I watched it in 2014 (laughs) and I watched it again. I I don't know what was wrong with me in 2014 (laughs) because it's excellent. I love the point you all bring up about It's like the family drama is as big as the horror. Mm -hmm. And RJ, I thought it was really interesting specifically that you brought it up because I feel like the thing that shines for me in your fiction is the way you portray family dynamics and the characters. So I feel like you write this kind of story very well.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And that might be why that really struck me. Like, I really dig that. Like, I mean, of course, horror is my jam, but there are things, other things
2: that are horrific. Um, So speaking of other things that are horrific, this film was based on a real incident. What the fuck? So I'm quoting this from Jim Emerson at Roger Ebert. And I went down the rabbit hole a little bit. So Albert McFarland, an American civilian mortician at the Yangsan military base who, in the year 2000, ordered his staff to pour 120 liters of formaldehyde into the morgue's plumbing. And although the chemicals passed through two tra- uh, treatment plants before reaching the Han River, the source of Seoul's drinking water, the scandal sparked an anti-American uproar in South Korea. Apparently that's the incident which is being portrayed at the beginning of the film. McFarlane lost his position after this, and he was supposed to serve six months in jail, which seems small for the amount of environmental damage he did. But in an appeal, uh, a, a South Korean judge ruled that he could have two years probation instead. And I think you can feel Jun Ho's righteous anger throughout the film. Of course you'd be angry if this happened. It also, weirdly... North Korea has a film rating system where they evaluate South Korean films. And this one scored very highly Mm. because because of these scenes at the beginning.
0: It's not making North Korea be the villain. It's showing how like American occupation is also troubling that that had a huge chunk of the reason why it rated so high North Korea, where they're like, it's not just us that's having issues here.
2: Yeah. As Americans, how do y'all feel when you watch this kind of movie? I feel like I'm embarrassed because I know they're right. I try to act in a way that my country doesn't do this shit anymore because it's bad for the entire world.
1: For sure. Yeah, I think embarrassment is probably the first reaction that I have when I see this kind of stuff. But right on its tail is anger. Uh, because it just doesn't have to be that way. You know, I know that we learned throughout history that colonialism has always been a thing. Um, Occupation by Western, you know, leadership has always been a thing. It's very, very sociocentric. It's very egocentric to think that our way is going to always be the best way. I think that's just really um, disrespectful. And so when I see these kind of things, then and then of course, behind the anger is always the, yes, let's strike back at this. Yes, let's show how blameful this is. Let's do that because it
0: needs to be called out. Yeah, I mean, I 100% agree. Uh, I do like that in an, in an article that I'll link to in the show notes when Jun Ho was interviewed about this. He spoke about how in the film they mentioned like the American soldiers like do the thing that a lot of a lot of colonizers and settlers do where they like, invent a problem to be the, the real cause for their misdeeds. And it's like, oh, it's a quote unquote virus. It's not that we did something bad. And he said that he put that in the film as a way to harken back to the WMDs in Iraq as like an example of how like we do this all the time as a country. And yeah, there are some times an American presence in a country that's like fractured could be helpful, but a lot of the time there's a lot of bad that comes with that, that we just don't talk about.
1: Like we get told all the time as creators that, no, that's too, that's too on the nose and that, that would never happen. It's like, yeah. Okay. Really? Really?
2: The first thing that struck me in this movie, there's no hiding the monster. I think for a long time, the the general theory with, with monster movies was that you wait till as long as you can to build anticipation and then show the monster. And I'm curious how you all reacted. Do you prefer the anticipation or do you wanna see the monster right away like we do in Host?
1: I think it depends for me. Mostly I love to see the monster. Like I kind of like to know what we, the audience and the characters are fighting against. But in a story like this, when the monster is not the worst monster, I think that there's there's nothing lost by showing that monster because we've already seen the real monster. We've already seen the biggest monster. This is kind of just a freebie, sort of a bonus. I mean, there's something to be said for, for uh, building anticipation, but but what I like about this is that it gives us right up front. Okay, this is, this is the monster, this is not the monster, this is a monster. So when it's just a monster, cool, give it to us right now. But if it's the monster, then you know anticipation can kind of lend itself to that experience, I think.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's all for me about the context of what the monster's purpose is or monsters. And I think at least for June Ho's film, it's a lot about like witnessing how people react, how the individual interacts with this monster and the effects of that, the family the actual government occupiers in their country and how everyone's decisions aren't great. (laughs) And that's kind of the, that's like the horrific part is that like, if people made different decisions, yeah, it could have been a collective force against a monster story, but because it's rooted in like a version of, of like realism, it's not. So we need that monster right away because it's all about how people choose or not choose to help each other, I think. So that's why I love that it's right up front. Cause then you're always just like, you know, it's like slithering around all this stuff, which is kind of like what sinister governmental forces are, right? It's always there and we see it sometimes, sometimes we don't, but we can feel it even if we can't quite articulate it.
1: Yeah, oh, that's perfectly stated, Cass.
2: I love I love how you put that. And Cass, you had some, some geeky facts about the monster.
0: I do. I feel like this, this Millicent Patrick is really inspiring me to like double down and like giving credit where credit is due. So, uh, the 40 foot creature was conceived by director Bong Jun ho and visualized by designer Zhang Hee-chol. And the cool thing about this is they used, oh God, so many people were involved. I'm going to link in the show notes to everyone that had a hand in this creation. Cause it, it is a lot, um, because they used of course, 3d animation. They also like had to create like rigs and have like stunt doubles used to create harnesses for certain shots where like if you think about like how a monster appears if it's a digital monster you have to imagine like an actor is always in front of a blank space um, but then when you edit in a monster like it has to make sense visually for us so they have all these tricks of like designing rigs to pull someone in a way like if you're getting snatched up by a monster You have to make that look believable, even if there's nothing physically there on the screen. So the the designed rigs, harnesses, uh, They first the scenes where they wanted it to really feel like someone was getting bitten, they made a full-size practical head puppet, which was built by John Cox's creative workshop in Australia, so that when we did have those close-ups and it was like those bitey scenes, it felt more tactile. It didn't feel like some other big monster movies that we've all seen, where it's like, it just feels a bit off and you bring realizes it's not real so i just love how much work went into this please read the link in the show notes that goes way more into all the aspects that they used to make this come to life
1: that is so cool yeah i, I didn't know there was a puppet i was like what <laughs> exactly uh yes exactly i'm so excited about that
2: like, really? i really do believe like practical effects add so much to the movie puppets animatronics mm-hmm. that's the best the second thing i really observed in this movie very clever writing, like the moment where the dad grabs the wrong girl's hand, because in the chaos, that could really happen to anyone. And it shot so well, because like we're looking at the dad's face and we see he has a hand and we're like, he's got her. And then we turn back and we see it's a different girl and we're exactly with him in that moment. We realize it's the wrong girl at the same time. And moments like that really stand out. Anything stand out about the writing to the two of you?
1: That went straight to my parents' heart because, I mean, you know, I have a whole bunch of kids. And when they were little, you know, you always worry about, okay, did I grab mine? Did I, uh, but you want to grab somebody else's because you want to still help that baby. But it's like, but where's my kid?
2: (laughs) So we are talking earlier, we've got, the way I see it, there's, there's three monsters. Um, We've already talked about the U.S. government. Talk about the actual monster. I think the third monster is really the dysfunctional family dynamics. And mm. everybody really hates King Do. it seems like. And so my question to you all is, is he really that bad?
0: Oh, God. <laughs> I think a simplistic version is he's just like, oh, he's like a quote-unquote loser, or like a version of like a grown-up fuckboy. <laughs>
2: but... <laughs> <laughs> but
0: like, I think why he gets all the hate is he represents like kind of the mediocrity that we all have, that we don't want to admit that we have, you know? Like we don't want to admit that we're not perfect and that we make mistakes and that like sometimes we are the butt of the joke. And I feel like, yes, he- he's not great. He's not responsible. He's very self-absorbed. Definitely should have been more involved with a lot of things. However, I think that all the other characters also make a lot of mistakes and they just project that onto him and that's horribly unfair and maybe that's been happening for a very long time and it's probably why he doesn't feel like the most confident father in the world and then something horrible happens and it just reinforces that like he is always going to be a mess even though that's not true
1: yeah yeah i i just i just have to answer this in southern dysfunction no family miss um (laughs) like in watching this i'm like okay wait that's like the worst thing those worst things he did i don't know i think he's still winning right (laughs) like the family members that i have and i love my family like if any of them listen to this they know that i love them but we have all these screw-ups right? And so it's kind of like, we're just this mismatch of people that make bad choices. And so seeing this character on the screen, I'm just kind of thinking, well, I mean, it could be worse because like, remember uncle so-and-so and then aunt so-and-so. And then, then there was my own, you know, sibling. I just didn't find that he was as terrible as he was portrayed to be. I, I agree with Cass. I think he became sort of a scapegoat for a lot of just what was going on there. And it wasn't deserved.
2: Yeah, Um, and he's definitely being contrasted with his sibling, his sister, Who's an Olympic archer. How would y'all feel about your siblings going to the Olympics?
1: I mean, so I have a sister who is a nurse, right? She's an RN. Yeah. And and I know that she she's my younger sister. She's always has had this whole, but you're, you know, professor, writer, or person. And I'm like, you are literally saving people's lives. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, okay, I teach people how to write and I write, but you, you're keeping people alive like that's just there is no comparison I think when you have these super duper siblings who are superheroes but it's all about perspective too Yep. Like, um, like, she thinks that what I do is just so superhero-like, but I don't just think, but I know that what she and, and her colleagues do really, that they are the real MVPs, really. So I think it's about perspective. Like, what what do you think is important?
2: My brother and partner are both doctors, so I know exactly how you feel, RJ.
1: <laughs> and <laughs> <when laughs> yeah. they're
2: like, it's so great you wrote a story. Like, you <laughs> saved someone's life.
1: Right. <laughs> Yes, you feel my pain (laughs) perfectly.
2: I have one question about the actual monster for y'all. It's saving its food for later, right? Is that a convenient plot point or something actual animals do sometimes?
1: Yeah, I love that. I think that that is realistic. So of course, like my demon hell beast that pretends to be a dog, sometimes he doesn't do that. Like anything he gets in his mouth, he's going to like that. But if you watch like normal animals, like real animals, you will often see uh, that they're very toddler-like. They will have a full meal, they're full stomachs, they've already eaten everything, but they will stash like snacks, like in the couch cushion, or you know, they'll put something like underneath the stove. And then later you see them chewing and they're chewing on this stashed thing, right? <laughs> and so for me that but to save it later, I don't care how big your stomach is at some point it gets full unless your metabolism is instantaneous. If it's an instant thing and it dissolves and goes away, you're going to be full. So why wouldn't you save it for later? Why wouldn't you kind of go all spidery and wrap that up? You know, we're going to wrap this up and we're going to put it in the pantry like that makes perfect sense to me.
0: I know listeners can't see this, but I just have to explain the grimace on Ryan's face as he's slowly realizing that in the future, Sid's going to be hiding like M&Ms and carrots in his couch cushions. And he's like, I was not prepared.
2: When RJ was saying that, I just felt my soul getting crushed in my body. It's like, oh no, my baby is going to be putting shit in that couch we bought six months before she was born. And I don't know if that uh, warranty protection I've ever got is actually going to be able to get peanut butter out of those
1: cushions. (laughs) You gotta get ready for that because I'm telling you, toddlers are something else. Like when you just watch the things that they do and their thought processes, they're always saving snacks for later.
2: (laughs) I am horrified to learn this. (laughs) So the other thing i really want to talk about with this movie i loved the ending it was very bleak so i think for american films especially we're trained to expect a happy ending if this is an american when they do the american remake of this in 15 years if they ever do um (laughs) they're gonna save the daughter right Mm -hmm. i love that he saves the daughter's friend who's homeless instead I feel like it rhymes with what we want, but it isn't what we want. And I think that's just great.
1: I find myself having to defend bleak horror endings a lot, even now, because I think that uh, like you, you pointed out, Ryan, we are accustomed to Western storytelling that says, okay, everything still works out at the end, but... Horror isn't pretty like that. It doesn't wrap up neatly. I remember when I read my first Brian Keen novel. It was my first introduction to what was uh, developing into the zo- the zombie uh, subgenre of horror. And I remember like going all along with the whole story, rooting for these characters, and then they all died at the end. And I was so distraught. And I had to examine why it, it was beautiful. Why are you so upset and then i thought because that's how life goes though and so i think that when we have an ending that doesn't quite jive with what we want and it isn't quite happy i think that that's a part of horror it makes us uncomfortable but that's also pointing to the importance of having stories that are told from different perspectives and through different cultural lenses because uh the reality is this is very indicative in storytelling that is not Western-based, you know, that you're not going to get that pretty, happy, or like um, the filmmakers are wanting nowadays, the hopeful endings. This is horror. Are you kidding me? What is there to hope for, <laughs> right? So I, I loved it. I thought it was wonderful. If I want happy endings, I watch
0: romance. That's what I know I'm in for. Then. Yeah, I totally agree. I think why we are attracted or why most people are attracted to horror is it gives voices to things that we have fears and anxieties about. And I think to add like a neat little hopeful bow at the end is disingenuous. So as Ryan was talking about really early on in the episode, in the history of Creature Future, the U.S.'s Creature Feature was more about the atomic age and about like, what could happen, you know, with all the scientific power, like going to the stars, what does that mean? The, the colonization will do there, don't worry. <laughs> Where like this film is about what actually did happen. So I think glossing it over or adding like happier ending would be untrue to what the story is trying to do. And I think that there's so much, there's so many more films that have yet to be made about things that have actually happened from a non-Western perspective to like non-Western audiences that deserve a voice in a space in the the landscape of film. I like the ending a lot. I also think that like, it is actually kind of hopeful. Like it is very bleak, but that it does give a suggestion for a path to move forward while also acknowledging like you can't erase what happened. Mistakes were made, people handled it horribly, but here's a new path forward. this other relationship this other stage of your life and let's see what happens i think that's kind of what rings true about it
2: yeah i feel like in terms of the the daughter's story it's Mm -hmm. very bleak in terms of father and the aunt and the uncle they all have like these redemption moments like the aunt finally gets her perfect archery shot where she can shoot because it's fast enough the dad finally gets a good haircut and starts being a responsible adult so they all kind of Grow in a very hopeful way, even though they don't actually achieve the goal they want of saving their their niece slash daughter, which is obviously like the scariest thing in the world to me as a new parent. I'm losing a child.
0: Yeah, but there's like something nice too. Like if if you're thinking about it, like it's really hard because we're not none of us in this podcast right now are Koreans, so like this is not going to land the same way for us. But like I can imagine how an ending like this feels even more helpful from like a South Korean perspective because it shows like, like you are more than what has happened to you, I guess, is the best way I can put it. Mm. Yes, nice, yes. Yeah.
2: So all of the movies I've seen, I've only seen three uh, Bong Joon-ho's movies, Parasite, Snowpiercer, and this, all end with snow. I don't know, have you all seen his other movies? Do they also end with snow? And is it symbolic? Is it just pretty? What's the symbolism of the snow here? Or in the other films, is it the same symbolism, different <laughs> symbolism? I have not
1: seen um, any of his other movies outside of this, but uh, for this particular one, host it makes sense. To me that it would end with snow uh because snow well you've read my collection ryan i am yeah. uh again native southerner i am really terrified of snow uh and when i say i mean i say that as somebody who got my mfa and a little residency program up in pennsylvania so some of the residencies were in the winter time um the first time i had to go there i was terrified because the snow looking down from the airplane like landing into chicago for a layover the snow covered everything it literally covered everything. All I could see was white expanses that just went on forever. Every now and again, you see this little hump in the snow and you go, but what is that? Is it like a, a building What is it's this stuff? It's just everywhere and it doesn't go anywhere. And so for me, the snow represents that whole obliteration of everything. Mm-hmm. It just covers everything you can't get away from it. And you just have to wait until it does melt until the season does change. And then what you get from underneath though, is like these beautiful little spring trees. Because then of course I go back to the school in the spring and I'm like, all that snow and all that ice, this is what came from it. This is what was under it. And so there's this idea of rebirth. There's this idea of the old being killed, and frozen, you just think about stuff being frozen like it, that's, it's dead. There's nothing alive right there right now like that. And so I think that I like it as a symbol for just that. Like, okay, this is done. It's over. This is the winter wintertime, uh, even like the ending of life. Like this is the winter time.
2: What comes after? Cass, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts as Cass and I both grew up in, in New England where there's snow all the time. Cass, uh, you also, how do you see snow as a symbol?
0: It's really funny because my notes for the film are along the lines of what RJ was saying of how I think for the purpose of this film, it's like a symbol of rebirth. Like there's just something really, uh, it sound very cheesy, but like seeing like untrodden snow, like there's no footsteps yet. No one has taken a step forward. Like what it's just like so suggestive of, of like the impact account that's not there yet. And I love like thinking about it, that metaphorical space in my mind, but I hadn't actually connected it too much to growing up around snow because personally I hate snow. I don't know why I'm still in New England. I don't, I don't know why I, I can't leave like going on over three decades here. And it's just like the whole, what is it? Uh, usually November until sometimes April of snow. It is horrible. It is horrible. <laughs> but I don't, I'll just put that in a separate box. <laughs> it's funny cause I,
2: I like living in Texas and Oklahoma the last five years, I miss snow so much i miss winter like real winter i do not <laughs> love like it was 100 degrees like 50 or 60 days in a row this summer and like mm-hmm. i'm not built for this i can't <laughs> live in this weather what is the bleakest ending to a movie that you all have liked the ending that hurt you the most but you were like think it's a good movie still i think there's stuff like uh, john skip was talking about lars von trier's movies at KillerCon and how like Larson Trier is a very skilled filmmaker, and all he wants to do is hurt you, learning anything. You're just like, Willem Dafoe's penis is getting hit with a hammer now, and I'm <laughs> looking at it. And I don't want to see any of those things. Right. Um,
1: and the mist.
2: The mist. Oh yeah. The
1: mist. I just, that ending was heartbreaking. And it was horrifying. But at the same time, it was very realistic. I mean, especially as being a parent, like you, you have all these thoughts of if something bad were going to happen, like, you know, would I go all beloved, you know, like, uh, like Sethi Suggs did, like, would I, you know, commit matricide? Would I kill my children to rescue them? Would I do that? Like you have these thoughts and then you actually see it play out on screen and you go, oh no, oh no. I thought it was bad enough that I was pushed to this, but then For the moment right directly after to have erased all the reasons that you had to do that. I I think that that would be soul crushing, but I think that it's hopeful in that we usually think about things like killing children, right? We think of these things as being moments of hopelessness, but it actually is an act of exercising agency that you, we always think we don't have choices and people like to say, well, I didn't have a choice. You had a choice. You had a lot of choices. You chose a difficult one. And so I think that the hopefulness there though, is that we do have choices. And sometimes we have to accept that we had that agency to act and, and then we just need to deal with the fallout of that.
2: Absolutely. Have you guys seen, there's a Twitter account called Needful Things that makes like fake action figures for movies. I guess they make real action figures. So they made one for The Mist and it was just an action figure box with five bullets in it.
1: Oh, yeah, no, that's, wow, that's
2: cool. (laughs) Cass, what is your favorite movie film bleak ending?
0: Oh, so I guess technically I too, because I think both happened as something that's important in different ways. So the thing I immediately thought of was Megan is Missing, which is a film I've only seen once. I refuse to watch it ever again. <laughs> I don't think it's always well-made. Like I think there's some moments that it's from a filmmaking perspective, like maybe it would tighten up some things. Um, but I will say like its impact for me, at least was immeasurable. Like I'm not yet a parent. I've walked through the, the world though, like pretty fun for most of my life. So I-, I and I remember certain moments where, like, I was just dumb, like, just did dumb shit. Like, pre internet, like, when you go to the mall with your friends and you'd be like, oh, yeah, like, so and so aiming me back in like the AOL, well, like instant messenger days. And like, he is a friend and we we're going to meet up these friends, like, at the mall. And it's like, you did not, you don't know these people. They're like a friend of a friend connection. That was so normal at that time. And you're just like, how did I not also end up in a barrel? And you're like, oh, my God. Uh, it is, it is terrifying. I do think that the, the reason that the film is so dark and so bleak was that the filmmaker earnestly was like I just want like young children and preteens and teens to just take a take a beat and not be like terrified of the world but like to maybe not always have rose-colored glasses on like it's fine if you think people are capable of good things but always remember people are also capable of like horrible things and to Mm -hmm. proceed with caution um, and be curious and just listen to your gut and step back if you feel like it's not okay. And I think that's something that like, we don't do much like stranger danger TV movies anymore, but I think that there's some truth in that that's important to bring back. And then the other one I thought of, which I actually think is a phenomenal film, it's another K-horror film called Wishing Stairs, and it's just all about these two ballerinas and this arts only, like really hard to get into academic school. And they're both competing for a spot on, I think it's like the Russian ballet company, like a really high prestigious spot. And they discover these stairs. And if you go up the stairs, and make a wish, it's rumored that it'll come true. But the way that it comes true, similar like a monkey paw way, mm. you don't quite know how it will. And it's very dark again, another film where like kids get killed. I'm just going in, just know that kids will get killed. They will not come back to life. But I think what's really interesting about that film is it just shows like the pressures we put on again, on like children and young adults to succeed without realizing like the hardships that's pushing them into it, like a much too young age. Like it's hard enough to figure out like what bills are and like how to get by in the world that like, yes, it's great to want a lot for your child, but also remember like, while you're pushing them to, to get that job or get that, that place on that team, you're also introducing them to like capitalistic anxieties at an age where like, they're not quite equipped yet to handle the whole weight of that and should be talked through.
1: Yeah. I think also about the ending of Candyman, the 2021 iteration very, very bleak. I wasn't prepared for that. Uh, <laughs> and I think that even though it was very bleak, I mean, you have this artist who literally was, had his soul sucked away. Like he was, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, technically he was killed by uh, the murderer, but he still was dying throughout that whole movie. And so the part that that's very hard, is heartbreaking. The part though, that is very hopeful is that his partner did survive the Mm. end and she was able to bear witness and also carry on his legacy and so there's hope there especially in light of he's a black man he's an artist and then he's killed by the police anyway like that's just this whole thing There's, there's this attack and but there's still hope there you know hope that that his legacy won't die. hope that um she continues to live and that she can carry that on
0: what about you ryan (laughs)
2: <laughs> I always write these fucking questions. I knew it. You did it again. <laughs> I did it again. I'm sorry. So I will say my favorite kind of movie is like, uh, I'll name a couple like Don't Look Now, The Changeling, The Vanishing. It's uh, somebody is grieving for like two hours and the last half hour of the movie, auditions like this too, um, something just unspeakably awful happens. But I think I've got to go, have you all seen the 1988 Dutch film, The Vanishing? The ending, I don't want to spoil it for y'all. The ending is so fucked up and so bleak, but I think the film is so good. Definitely watch the, the original version.
1: is
2: mm. absolutely, too, has a great, great yeah. ending. I haven't seen the American remake of that either. I generally.
0: Yeah, it's not as good. They do the same thing that you would imagine they did.
2: We'll talk later. Yeah, on the podcast. Um, I know that one came out like two or three years ago. <laughs> so, do we have any other thoughts, questions about the hosts that we want to talk about?
1: I
0: think I'm good. What about you, RJ? Yeah, I think
1: so. I I love this. I think that we've covered so much. <laughs> no,
0: that's good. Uh, well, it's been. A pleasure speaking with the RJ and hearing your thoughts and just diving a bit more into your creative brain space. Uh, I'm excited to see more of your work. And speaking of, where can our listeners find you and your work? And anything you have upcoming?
1: Yes, thank you. I have had so much fun with you all. I'm so excited to uh, that Ryan invited me uh, to chat. I'm like, oh, this is just the coolest thing. Like, if I could do this all day every day, I would like have the best life, right? <laughs> And so uh, usually I can be found on Twitter. Like I literally haunt Twitter. And, you know, one day I'm, I have this website in in progress as we speak. It's been in progress for like years. But at R. Jackson Joseph on Twitter is usually where I can be found. I do have coming up those two academic conferences that uh, we talked about in the beginning. The Candyman and the Whole Damn Swarm is happening um, October 7th through 9th. Uh, and then the MAPACA. Um, uh conferences happening November 10th through 12th. They're both virtual. And so that way I think that's really flexible. I also have a short story where the horizon meets the sky. That'll be in the Baba Yaga anthology, uh Into the Forest that comes out in November. Yeah, yeah. Always have stuff in progress like um but those are the things that are coming up the fastest.
2: And y'all listeners should absolutely buy Hell Hath No Star like a Woman Haunted. You should absolutely buy it. It is an excellent short story collection. So the other thing uh, RJ and I are doing, um, we're doing uh, something called Beers for Fears. RJ and I will be reading at uh, Barking Armadillo Brewery in Georgetown, Texas, October 28th, doing a She Wore Black podcast at seven, readings at eight, and it will feature RJ and I, Max Booth III, Johnny Compton, L.P. Hernandez, and Andrew Hilbert. It should be a lot of fun. There'll be books on sale and it should be a ton of fun.
0: Well, thanks everyone for tuning in. Until next time. Thank you, RJ Joseph, for gifting us with your time. And I can't wait to see what you and Ryan are up to next.
2: Thank you so much for coming on, RJ. This was excellent. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing you in October and I'll definitely see you at Ghoulish in April, I imagine.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, as soon as the link went live, I got my spot.
0: (laughs) Thank you again, gals, ghouls, and baddest days of the world, for tuning in to Horror Hangover Show and listening to us and RJ Joseph take a bite out of the creature feature subgenre. Stay tuned for October, when we're taking a continued break from our vampire arc to have two timely episodes. One all about Halloween H2O in honor of the upcoming Halloween movie, Halloween Ends, and the second, a horror podcast crossover event with some of our favorite friends of the pod. So stay tuned. both and until then don't play with your food unless you're a monster and it's fun for you or a toddler apparently